0: Hey everybody, welcome back. Thanks for uh, tuning back in. This is gonna be part two of our series on Pythagoras. Um, This is actually going to be two chapters and they're both four parts. So we're on the first of the two chapters that are on Pythagoras, Pythagorean philosophy. And uh, so this one picks up where our previous episode left off, which was overviewing part one, which is more of an introduction. And so in this one, we're going to be going deeper into the substance of Pythagorean philosophy. In particular, we're, we're going to be investigating their foundational ideas about the philosophy of number and the emergence of number. So we're going to be investigating all of that and considering it and analyzing it and uh, featuring a lot of quotes from Manley Hall. So I'm looking forward to going into this. And uh, once again, this is going to be Uh, Revisiting some of the themes that we talked about in our Mahayana Buddhism series, we're now reframing them and sort of re-angling our perspective and now looking at these same principles and truths through the lens of the Pythagoreans. So this is a numerical-based philosophy. It's the philosophy um, that really underpins science. It's the foundation of science because science is premised upon number. And... uh, And so we're looking at the substance of number, the basis of number. All right, let's get into it. Um, This first section that we're going to be looking into is uh, part E overall. It's called Number and the Philosophy of Science. Pythagorean philosophy is, according to Manley Hall, a system of metaphysical speculation concerning the relationships between numbers and the causal agencies of existence. Number is archetypal. It is born out of the inner workings of the Divine Mind. When the mind of the Creator thinks, he does so in terms of pure number. All material forms and bodies are ideations, born out of this Divine Mind. Each is fashioned as a thought form of this supreme creative power. The ideations are thought forms fashioned within the mind of the Creator are initially conceived in a pure subjective form. Here, they exist as archetypal seed ideas and are conceived in terms of pure number, mathematics, geometry, and music. After their initial conception as archetypes, the creator's divine ideas are projected outward onto the field of matter where they become objective. So they move from a subjective to an objective state through matter, that's what that's what that's the element that matter provides. This objective uh, quality, this quality to make a, a form from a, an idea, a design within the mind of the creator. Matter allows that idea to be projected and an image to be created. So the purely subjective consciousness of the divine self can experience itself as a self, a form, a living being. Comprised of innumerable lesser beings within its nature, so essentially this is what—that's what creation is. It's it's one great being experiencing itself through its own parts, and uh, and this process is described the, how this happens is described in precise mathematical detail in Pythagorean philosophy. Um, so let's continue. So after their initial conception as archetypes, the creator's ideas, his divine ideas, are projected outward onto the field of matter where they become objective. In the process, they lose their perfection. I mean, the the initial idea was perfect, but as that idea gets expressed, it's not initially expressed in a perfected state. So So the idea loses its perfection as it gets expressed into matter. And so the idea uh, is is expressed imperfectly and a sequence of relatively imperfect states until finally the perfect idea is manifested, that the form can manifest the idea perfectly. So in between that final end state and the initial conception of the idea is a process of relative imperfection, a relative imperfection. And... That's what life is, uh, particularly human life. It's to go from being imperfect to realizing perfection. So we're the instruments through, through which this perfection is first realized. And then through mankind, this perfection is attained within nature as a whole. So then man becomes the alchemist of nature. So man's story is the process of this ideation coming into f- actualization to fruition. Um, But the seed idea, the plan for the whole process uh, and the perfect end state was already formed in the very beginning with the uh, first emergence of that seed idea. And that seed idea is the basis of self, the manifested self. And then uh, the self has uh, has to attain this this image, this perfect image of itself, that's its quest in order to resolve itself. And well, through this process, it's like a meditation for this consciousness. Through this great meditation, this process of forming a perfect image of itself, it uh, it externalizes its own inner um, capacities, its own inner potentials, and any imbalances and dynamics uh, that um, that have not been mastered within itself become projected and has to be worked through in the process of fashioning this perfect image. So the creator experiences all aspect of, it, of its creation. It is the creation. It meditated it. It is its meditation. After its initial conception as an archetypal idea, the creator projects his image for life outward onto the plane of matter where it is gradually made objective, meaning It is gradually brought into a state of actualization and realization within the domain of matter. Through matter, the subjective is made objective, but the objective form is not immediately perfect. It must evolve toward perfection in the fullness of time, or through the fullness of time. So in the process of projecting its own image into matter, this image loses its perfection and becomes expressed in a relatively imperfect state. This imperfection must be overcome through growth, experience, and evolution. Ultimately, the material universe is created as a divine ritual in which cosmic consciousness gradually forgets, but then incrementally reawakens to, the fact of its own oneness. Mathematics, the study of the relationship between numbers, is revered in philosophy as the master science, with all further sciences built upon its foundation. There is a single archetypal framework of number that exists throughout creation. All life forms that are born within the universe exist as manifestations of this single numerical design. It is because of the ubiquity and universality of this numerical archetype that science is possible. Different teams of scientists can independently perform an experiment numerous times in different locations and find similar patterns in their measurements because one universal numerical pattern is manifesting universally throughout nature. Number is therefore the foundation of science. It provides the universe with a single objective standard through which forms and beings of various type, scale, and quality can be compared and contrasted. This truth explains why forms at every level of creation, from the atom to the solar system, can be studied scientifically. Each lends itself to objective numerical analysis because each is divinely designed according to numerical principles. So think about the the dialectic homogeneity and heterogeneity. So heterogeneity, which is the investigation of difference, how things are different, can only exist if you have a basis by which to compare those two things. So something has to be homogeneous between them that is a that is the con that allows for a context of comparison to be made or of heterogi- heterogeneity to be uh, discerned. So, homogeneity is uh, primary to heterogeneity, and the basis of homogeneity is this concept of archetype, of design, divine design, intelligent design, of number. The fact that we that scientists Find number everywhere in nature. It's only because you're able to find number in nature that they're able to uh, perform experiments that can uh, verify other people's experiments. With the idea that there's one truth in nature happening, and uh, you know, a scientific theory is attempting to describe that truth. It's like a, it's like you're attempting to make a map of a territory, and so. The scientists are attempting to make a map, and so when uh, when they claim to have made an accurate map of some area of uh, of the law of nature's design or how this design manifests in a particular area, the reason that other scientists can perform experiments separately at different time periods and in different places and test out whether their findings confirm or deny the validity of the initial hypothesis. Uh, the, the initial experimenters, the initial scientists claimed that their hypothesis had been, had passed the experiment, that their hypothesis had been um, supported by the experiment. Other scientists can come and uh, check that and see if their experiment was supported or their high, that same hypothesis was supported by their experiment. But the only way that this is possible is that there's one archetypal standard underlying both experiments. There has to be one thing shared in common between both of them that allows for these two separate things to be compared and contrasted with each other. And so that concept is this idea of number. Number is the basis of science. To study and probe manifest creation in search of divine number is to be a true scientist. And to be a true scientist, one must be a philosopher. For science is actually a branch of philosophy and not a separate independent institution. At least in its original design, this is how it was uh, considered. And then in our modern context, the science that we learn in school and the science that is discussed in popular culture, popular science, is a, um, a, a science detached from philosophy. It has convinced itself that it is independent of religion, but by detaching itself from philosophy, it has really um, sort of become a religion in its own way, Um, very dogmatic, because to get beyond the dogma, either in religion or in science, you must have philosophy. Science, in its measurement of nature, discovers numbers manifesting in regular, repeating patterns everywhere they look. This truth, The fact that scientists find number manifesting in identical patterns everywhere is proof that the universe is ensouled with and guided by a supreme spiritual intelligence. An intelligence who thinks and ideates in terms of number. Science's confirmation of the omnipresence of number throughout the universe is an objective confirmation of the ultimate truth revered by religion, that deity is omnipresent throughout creation is in fact creation itself, and is purposefully guiding and evolving the universe toward a state of ultimate fulfillment. This ultimate completion of universal life is attained when life fulfills the total design of the archetype or seed idea for its own existence. This is an ultimate achievement that is to be accomplished only at the final culminating point of the universe's grand evolutionary life cycle. And with that, I end this uh, this section here, and we're gonna be moving on to part F, intellectual and sciential numbers. And so we'll be going into that. All right, now moving on to part F, intellectual and sciential numbers. And sciential, is, it's spelled like science, but uh, instead of the C and the E at the end of the word, it's T-I-A-L, scient- sciential. So intellectual and sciential numbers. In their philosophy of number, the Pythagoreans recognize that the creation of the universe as an objective entity involves the polarization of unity into higher and lower, or superior and inferior, categories of number. So, in the birth of number, things begin with unity. And then number emerges not as one thing, but actually as a dialectic. There's two aspects of number. The higher and superior aspect of number is devoted to the mystery of first cause, while the lower lower and inferior aspect of number is involved with the manifest world of material effect. So cause and effect. That's how the two... two, One set of numbers is for cause and one set of numbers is for effect. In the Pythagorean philosophy... In Pythagorean philosophy, the superior numbers involved with cause are given the title intellectual, and the inferior numbers involved with effect are termed sciential. So let's uh, tackle these one by one, uh, and we're going to first look at intellectual numbers. Intellectual numbers are formless and without measurable quantity, referring instead to transcendent principles that exist as pure spiritual ideas or archetypes. As Manley P. Hall describes them, the intellectual numbers are archetypal patterns which exist eternally in the divine mind. More specifically, they describe a sequence of spiritual emanations, or unfoldments in cosmic consciousness, that culminate in the formation of the universe as an ensouled material entity. So the universe is created out of a series of unfoldments that take place within unity. And these Series of unfoldments from our perspective take place metaphysically or beyond the physical universe and the physical universe is only created as a end effect of these unfoldments, so it's the um, The product or effect of a system of causes that are taking place within unity um, And in this way the natural world the physical world the material universe is held within unity It's held within a field of unity And so through number, that's how we investigate how this happens. And so through the higher aspect of number, we investigate the metaphysics. And then, then through the lower aspect of number, we investigate the science, the physical science. The esoteric aspect of the Pythagorean doctrine, its inner Kabbalistic teachings, reserved for its most advanced students, are rooted in the study of intellectual numbers, But before this more advanced level of the doctrine is made accessible to the student, they must first master the aspects of the teaching associated with sciential number. So the inner and highest aspect has to do with intellectual numbers, but in the organization of the school, the new student will start with the sciential numbers. And then only once the core concepts have been mastered um, with sciential numbers, then the student is brought into the higher metaphysics. And so in a way, this is kind of like where we're being prepared for uh, as a collective, is that our science that we are taught in school is sciential numbers, based on sciential numbers. And in a new paradigm, a systems-based paradigm, then within the context of sciential number, we will now be incorporating an understanding of intellectual number. Which is not incorporated in, in, in our science, meaning our the science of our materialistic age is, does not incorporate metaphysics or intellectual numbers. So that is the new paradigm um, that we're moving into, and this new paradigm must involve a ensouling of science by connecting it back to philosophy, and we do this through an understanding, a renewed understanding of Pythagoras, as the, really the founder of western modern or, you know western science or modern science to differentiate one from the other sciential numbers were given the familiar names 1 2 3 4 etc while intellectual numbers were given the names the monad the duad the triad the tetrad the pentad the hexad the heptad the ogdoad, the eniad and then finally the decad so those are the 10 digits of the um, intellectual numbers. That's how we differentiate them as we call them something different. But the symbol is the same. It's number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven, number eight, number nine, and number ten. So that is uh, that's the section for intellectual numbers. Now, now let's go a little bit deeper onto to sciential numbers. Material forms originate as archetypal ideas held in the divine mind and come into existence as extensions of these archetypal ideas into material existence. In this process of extension, intellectual numbers become clothed in matter, becoming sciential numbers. So intellectual numbers clothed in matter is what sciential numbers are, and there's various layers of clothing, and those various layers of clothing correspond to mathematics, geometry, and music. That's how you approach those disciplines, that's how those aspects of the of the philosophy of number, and the philosophy of mathematics, those are all part of it, geometry, music. They're all incorporated as layers. So in other words, the divine mind thinks and plans in terms of intellectual number. Once the plan is fashioned, uh, this plan is brought into objective manifestation by means of sciential number. Sciential numbers measure material forms in both their space and time dimensions. So that's the... um, the basis of sciential numbers. That's, that's that's what we have, that's what we know, is sciential numbers, the measurement, the use of measuring uh, forms and their space and time dimensions. Um, while intellectual numbers are primarily qualitative and refer to principles, sciential numbers are primarily quantitative and are what is used in mathematics and geometry. Beginning with the number three, sciential numbers are divided into odd and even, odd numbers being creative and of the gods, and even numbers being receptive and of the earth. Using the number eight as an example, Manley Hall explains how the two categories of number differ. The sciential number eight signifies eight ones or eight parts, but the Ogdoad, which is the intellectual concept of eight, is an undivided principle, meaning it is the symbolic name for an order of divine procedure, an entire order of divine procedure. To give another example of the difference between intellectual and sci- sciential numbers let's consider the difference between the Pythagorean definition of the monad, which is the intellectual version of the number one, and then its definition of the, of the one, uh, but that's the sciential form of one. So one, what we call one is actually the sciential number and then the, modad, the monad is the higher intellectual number and then the supreme principle that each emerges out of that they both, that the, this dialectic emerges from is unity. So, so so, we have unity, monad, and one and that's a, those are three statements of unity that are relatively different from one another but they're all unity, you see. So we have a trinity, we have the three as one, three principles that form one underlying concept Hall explains that the monad is the seminal reason for the one. It's the reason, it's the cause for the one. While the one is the monad, or is a lesser monad, a microcosmic monad, you could say, amongst things numbered. That's what Manley Hall says, amongst things numbered. Let's unpack this statement a bit. The monad is the cause, and the one is the effect. Therefore, the reason or cause for the one's existence can be found in the monad. The one, once it emerges out of the monad, becomes the one over the all, the first and ultimate of created things. For this reason, in its capacity of allness, it is the monad amongst things numbered. It's relatively like, a, like the monad, but the monad is, super, is actually superior to the one. That's the end of, of uh, F, part F, so part G. Uh, It's called Supreme, Superior, and Inferior, and here we're going to be going uh, more into comparing and contrasting the relationship between these three elements, these three principles of unity, monad, and one. In Pythagorean philosophy, the terms unity, monad, and one refer to three gradations of the same principle, God. They work together as a trinity. They are three faces of one underlying spiritual truth. The human mind, unable to grasp the unity of God in its essential state, must intellectually partition this unity into a trinity in order to comprehend it. In the Pythagorean system, the three principles that comprise this ultimate trinity are termed unity, the monad, and the one. In this trinity, the monad is the superior principle of cause, the one is the inferior principle of effect, and unity is the supreme principle of ultimate truth and reality. It plays host to both cause and effect, mediating their interaction and eventually bringing them into mutual equilibrium. As creation proceeds, it does so as a mathematical process of bringing the inherent potential of intellectual number, such as the monad, into objective expression, as sciential number, as the one. So the one is actually in matter, and uh, intellectual number is on the cusp of matter, looking into it, but outside of it. The manifestation of sciential number from its archetype, which is intellectual number, takes place through the unfoldment of mathematics and its offshoots, geometry, and music. For this reason, the Pythagoreans viewed mathematics as a bridge uniting the polarities of heaven and earth heaven being a transcendent incorporeal realm governed by intellectual number, and earth a dense material realm of bodily form and physical motion ruled by sciential number. So I hope that uh, sort of clarified somewhat the relationship between these three principles, that they are organized according to the archetypal relationship hierarchy of supreme superior and inferior that's the that's the the trinity that i've been talking about uh thesis antithesis synthesis that's that organization scheme you know superior and inferior are thesis and antithesis and they they're synthesized with a supreme concept that that is over top and unites them um for example think yin and yang and and Taoist philosophy, yin and yang is uh, the polarity, and the yin element is, is considered superior. And um, but those that dialectic, those two principles are framed by a third principle, which is the Tao, and the Tao is an eternal motion, and this eternal motion, this concept of an eternal lawful motion, is not only a motion of uh, the the yin and yang in relationship to each other, but it's also a cycle in which the yin and yang move into and out of synthesis, or move into and out of union with each other. So they're either expressed or not expressed. That's also part of this cycle. So when they become expressed, they separate. But when they unite, they there's no differentiation between the yin and yang. You can no longer say there's only the, there's only the Tao at that point. And then, at the as, when creation, uh, the first step of creation is the re-partitioning um, of yin and yang, or heaven and earth. And then, within that partitioning, comes the third element, which which manifests in their midst, which becomes um, the the manifest God, the divine self, the grand man, the macrocosm the macrocosmic man, is born in, the, in, the, in between and becomes the, uh, you know, like atlas. He, he holds up heaven and earth, holds up this polarity, and then gradually through his own wisdom and love and compassion, his own, his, 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 the high d- spiritual principles that are innate within him, he, he brings this uh, polarity into a dy- dynamic equilibrium. He synthesizes it within his own nature, and so he becomes the alchemist. All right, so let's move on to part H. First principles of number. So now we're going to be going sequentially through the first uh, and highest principles associated with the numbers uh, 1, 2, and 3. But we're actually going to start with 0. Things, the foundation is, is 0. So <coughs> let's begin. Zero, the absolute, infinite unity. Pythagorean philosophy establishes its foundation on the abstract principle of infinite unity. This abstract state of pure spiritual existence is termed the absolute and is given the symbol zero. The Pythagorean symbol for zero is a depiction of an empty circle. Perhaps even more accurately, you could say it's an Ouroboros. Which is an archetypal religious symbol of a snake or a dragon spinning around on itself, eating its own tail. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this symbol. So that's what a zero ultimately is a reference to. It's not nothingness. Because nothingness is part of a, of a dialectic. There's nothing and then there's all. Um, but this is beyond nothingness. And this is beyond allness. This is uh, infinite being. Infinite unity. Uh, it's it's a pure abstract uh, state, and at the same time it's the ultimate truth. Um, for us living beings, You know, humans in creation it is uh, entirely abstract because we're within creation, so the ultimate that we can conceive and experience is God. But God interfaces with something yet greater than, than God, which is the absolute. So the absolute you don't even call God, it's beyond God because there is no definable quality to it. But God's definable qualities are made manifest through us and through creation. So this is something that's beyond definition. And that's the substance. This is the Tao that can't be named, in other words. The Pythagorean symbol for zero, like I said, is the depiction of an empty circle. Um, All right, here we go. The absolute is the ultimate God concept of philosophy. As Manley Hall explains, there is but one superior to God, and that is the absolute itself. Zero references the existence of an unconditioned state, which is neither a being nor an entity, but which is the foundation of both. It is pure being and pure entity, meaning it is an eternal principle of pure quality. The eternal absolute, the supreme of all qualities, is the foundation of quantity, implying that quality is primarily superior to quantity, meaning the qualitative aspect of, uh, of experience rather than the quantitative measuring mind, the aspect of mind that is intellectual and that thinks in terms of um, symbols, in terms of number, in terms of concepts. So that aspect of mind is inferior to an, a- to an aspect that exists within ourselves that can experience Uh, consciousness or experience God in terms of its pure qualitative aspects. And so the mystical experience is associated with these experiences of pure the the pure divine qualities of the spirit, the manifest spirit, which is ever-present. These qualities are are, um, the foundation of quantity. In our previous series of articles on Mahayana Buddhism, I discussed how the cyclic awakening of uh, the supreme principle Adi-Buddhi to become uh, Adi-Buddha. So Adi-Buddha is, is the awakened um, or yang context of Adi-Buddhi, which is the yin. And so the awakening of Adi-Buddhi into Adi-Buddha marks first cause, the beginning of cosmic existence. In the same way, the awakening of unity in relation to zero which is an abstract state of infinite unity, marks the onset of cosmic creation in the Pythagorean doctrine. So adi budi means infinite unity, and it references a supreme principle which is perceived as an ultimate state of perfect and complete existence. Everything that exists does so in relation to it. So it's the ultimate state. Periodically, in relation to the eternal and infinite reality of zero, is awakened a supreme unity that emerges to play host to lesser unities. So this is this idea of the Buddha field that we talked about in our previous series. The idea that uh, Adi Buddha awakens within Adi Budhi to become not a Buddha, but rather he becomes, or Adibuddhi, excuse Adi Buddha becomes a Buddha field in which Buddhas are born and evolved. And these Buddhas are what we would call a god. So, so a god exists within the all-god, and that in turn exists within, uh, within the context of a, a yet superior abstract state. The Buddhists viewed Adi-Buddha as the outer face of Adi-Buddhi, the principle of infinite unity. So from infinite unity comes unity. And it is unity that plays host to creation, not infinite unity, which is beyond creation. Adi Buddha, as the aspect of unity that interfaces with manifest creation, plays host to a series of internal unfoldments within its consciousness. These unfoldments are products of its internal power of mind. At the culmination of these internal unfoldments that are taking place within mind, uh, which are in turn taking place within this absolute context of consciousness, consciousness being uh, equivalent to unity, consciousness is the quality of unity. And unity is the quantity of consciousness. So at the culmination of these internal unfoldments that are taking place within consciousness through mind, because that's what mind does. It's mind's purpose to to manufacture these unfoldments within consciousness. But through these unfoldments, eventually an experience of self-existence is fashioned, where a divine being is born that experiences itself as a Buddha, meaning a self-consciousness, a divine self existing in relation to an external field of not self. And the not self is matter. But that's what's required for an experience of self-existence is a definition of not self. And the power that makes this definition that creates a self and that defines a not self is mind. So the power of mind that emerges within consciousness. So we have that trinity of consciousness, mind, and self. Before moving on to explore how creation takes place within the context of unity, let's spend a little more time unpacking the relationship between infinite unity, which is zero, and unity. The difference between the supreme Buddhist principles of Adi-Buddhi and Adi-Buddha is the same difference as that implied in Hindu philosophy with the principles of Brahman, also sometimes called Parabrahman, and Brahma. Brahman with the in on it is a, is eternally unmanifest but periodically within Brahman Brahma awakens within the infinite field of its space it is Brahma emerging within Brahman who then plays host to further creative unfoldments and activities so it is Brahma who becomes the the god the godhead the apex of the divine hierarchy, but that whole hierarchy Brahma included is itself within Brahman which is unmanifest. So Brahman is like space and then Brahma is emerges as a place within space and you, could, you could, now you can extrapolate that to the same thing with Adi Buddhi and Adi Buddha. And then now you can uh, then move it to unity and zero. So zero is like the empty circle. And then unity is, is like the dot emerging within the context of that circle. And then that creation process then is recapitulated. So then that dot, as it creates, becomes like the circle. And the things it creates become like lesser dots within itself. So the dot in the circle becomes this dynamic thing. The difference between zero and unity or Adi Buddhi and Adi Buddha is also the same as the difference articulated in Taoist philosophy between the two states of the Tao. There's the Tao that can't be named and the Tao that can be named. The Tao that can be named is Adi Buddha, which the Mahayana Buddhists described as an infinite Buddha field of enlightened consciousness that plays host within its infinite and eternal expanse to uh, microcosmic Buddhas, to lesser microcosmic Buddhas. Each is seated in its midst upon a budding lotus, meditating an internal universe into being within the space of its inner consciousness. So the Buddha field is a field of enlightenment infinite enlightenment that buddhas are born and and sort of uh, dissolve back into absorb back into and uh, then beyond this buddha field is adi buddhi which is like the substance is like the law it's like the it's like the eternal unmanifest law that will forever guide how uh, consciousness or adi buddha can express itself or how it emerges and, and absorbs back into an eternal state. So this Adi Budi, it, 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 it represents the yin principle. It never moves. Adi Buddha, or you could say Brahma, is moving in the sense that it is uh, eternally oscillating between an active and passive state of expression. Um, so that movement takes place within a context, which is the eternal unmanifest state. Um, I want to, before we on be going to investigate more the nature of unity, I want to, and moving now beyond zero and moving to the number one, I want to just consider a few more quotes about the nature of uh, zero, and these come from Manley Hall. So on the subject of zero and its archetypal symbol of the empty circle, or or the uh, Ouroboros, Manley Hall writes, Pythagoras simply described first cause by the symbol zero, which represents not, the circle, containing within itself all things, with the center everywhere and the circumference nowhere. The field of the circle, by its blankness, infers that there is no condition present within it. Yet, as Pythagoras states, this eternal absolute is not impoverished. It is lacking in nothing, and it is abundant in all things. Therefore, it may properly be said, in the absolute abides all forms. According to Pythagoras, this absolute infinity of being extended beyond all boundaries of created things, beyond all the forms and bodies that exist in nature. Properly and appropriately, it may be referred to as similar to but greater than space. This absolute, conditioned, unqualified, eternal principle is neither born nor dies. It is subject neither to age nor youth, and therefore it is time in suspension. For this reason, the Egyptians termed it unpassing time. The philosopher reveres the absolute, zero, and its outer face, unity, as a mysterious invisible power in which all faiths can live, move, and have their being. The absolute is unknown and unknowable, even to the most enlightened of sages. Only God may contemplate it. Therefore, the absolute, or zero, and its outer phase unity, is beyond any sectarian god or religious idol possible for man to fight over. Writes Manley Hall, quote, The wise man is one who is no longer willing to believe in creedal limitations of truth. He recognizes one sovereign and superior being, called by the ancient Greeks the principle of principles, the absolute. Hall explains that you do not pray to the absolute any more than you would pray to the ocean. The tides obey no man. Likewise, nothing man can do or say can in any way change, modify, or placate the absolute. Like the tide, it sees nothing, hears nothing, answers nothing, and knows all. He continues, This eternal principle, neither male nor female, neither above nor below, neither great nor small, neither visible nor invisible, neither tangible nor intangible, may be appropriately termed the absolute. It is diversified equally throughout the entire vicissitudes of time and all space. It is distributed without conditions, quality, or limitation. It has neither summit nor depth. No dimensions may be ascribed to it. But dimensions exist within it. It can neither be circumscribed nor bound, because it possesses within itself the principle of formless infinity. It is all life, but not alive. It does not possess any quality of oneness or beingness, but is eternally a condition present in all nature and all forms. Therefore, it is properly denominated as the absolute, the infinite, the summit, the closed eye, the crown, that which is, was, and ever shall be. For the first cause, there is no appropriate positive definition. In conceptual terms, Manley Hall writes that space is the nearest thing to the absolute we can conceive of physically. You take hold of it. When you speak, your voice is speaking through it. Everything that exists, exists in it. Infinite being is imminent and imminent, meaning I am imminent and em imminent, um, everywhere in eternity. Everywhere that exists exists because of it. It is the great emptiness that goes on beyond the stars. It is the dark, hidden root of all visible things, appropriately termed in Egypt the thrice deep darkness from which emanated gods and men. Space is like a placid pool in which many forms of life are growing, each according to its own kind. It is the mysterious ground from which all things grow downward, even as the plants grow upward from this little earth of ours. Within absolute space, time lives and dies of old age, and yet it is not one whit older than it was before. The absolute is infinite existence, infinite space, infinitely diversified. All that exists is merely the absolute objectified. It is the abiding place of the stars and planets, manifested to us in everything we perceive. The absolute is like the dark soil planted with the seeds of life. Downward from the absolute grows the universe, with its roots in the dark abyss, which is neither good nor bad, but which is and ever shall be. All right, let's begin with the next section. After zero, we're going to be looking at the number one and considering the, once more, the relationship between unity, the monad, and the one. As we discussed previously, in Pythagorean philosophy, the terms unity, monad, and one refer to three gradations of the same principle, God. They function together as a trinity, three faces of one underlying spiritual truth. The human mind, unable to grasp the unity of God in its essential state, must intellectually partition this unity into a trinity of interconnected principles and qualities in order to comprehend it. In the Pythagorean system, these three principles are termed unity, the monad, and the one. In this trinity, the monad is the superior principle of cause, the one the inferior principle of effect, and unity the supreme principle of ultimate truth and reality, which plays host to both cause and effect and eventually equilibrates them or balances them. Cause and effect, the monad and the one, together emerge out of the mystery of unity, which itself awakens within the context of infinite unity or the absolute. In Pythagorean philosophy, first cause is preceded by the cyclic reawakening of unity within the context of the absolute. This is all kind of a recap, but I I felt it necessary to go back over it. Once awakened, unity plays host to all further numerical emanations, the first being the monad. If unity is symbolized by by the Ouroboros, or empty circle, then the birth of the monad within unity represents the placing of a dot in the center of the circle. In this way, through the monad, Divine unity is established in place. So the beginning of place, so to speak, is with with the monad. Unity remains as space in relation to all other creation. Now, in relation to the absolute, it is the emergence of, of place. It's the initial first cause from space to place. But then once that place is formed, that unity within infinite unity, then that unity becomes the host of internal creation. And the thing about this Buddha field is that these unities, these Buddhas are infinite in, in, in expanse. Uh, as, that's why it's a Buddha field. There's more than one. There, there's a, a grand design of Buddhas. And that the whole overall grand design of all Buddhas manifesting itself manifests the supreme consciousness of Adi Buddha. So the monad is born within the womb of unity. It floats, lives, and moves within and is supported and sustained by the very cause of itself. That's a Manley Hall quote. Hall further explains, all that is manifested is manifested within the body of that god, the monad or the divine self, who came out of space or unity. This God is the eternal being, which is properly denominated the Father. And this Father principle is the supreme God of our consciousness. It is indeed the God in whom we live, move, and have our being. That that was also a Manley Hall quote. The monad is created as a localization of unity's consciousness and is therefore limited in relation to unity. Within the monad, we find pure abstract qualities such as being and consciousness becoming objectified as a divine being or a universal consciousness. In Hindu terminology, the monad is Brahma, while unity is Parabrahma, that which is beyond Brahma. Parabrahm is also called Brahman. So uh, unity is Parabrahma. It gives birth to Brahma, and it receives Brahma back, its, back into its infinitude at the culmination of time. The monad is God made manifest as an active creative power, or as a spiritual self. As Hall explains, about the central axis of the One, which is the tree of being, moves the whole order of numbers, which are suspended from the One, even as the One itself is suspended from the principle of unity. Of which it is the primary mathematical manifestation. So this is called a continuous geometric proportion. This is actually something I get into in the in the last uh, part four of this um, of this series. Is that uh, a continuous geometric proportion is what we find with the golden section, and it is the greater is to unity. Excuse me, and it is the greater is to unity, as unity is to the lesser. That's what. That's what. uh, the proportion of the golden section says so it's one point what is it 1.618 is to 1 as 1 is to 0.618 that's a continuous geometric proportion and the only thing in nature that exhibits that is the golden section that's what makes it special so that's the archetype actually of uh of this triangulation and this idea of thesis antithesis synthesis it's the revelation of that truth within nature. That's what the significance of the golden section is. Um, Once established, the monad becomes the imperishable whole, which can never increase or decrease, and is always the sum of conceived or conceivable parts. All further numbers beyond the monad exist within the monad. They are fractional parts of its primordial wholeness. Thus, two is in reality unity considered in terms of halves. Three is unity considered in terms of, in terms of thirds, etc. So it's not uh, additive, actually. It's, it's a divisional process, um, meaning one doesn't become two ones. It becomes uh, two halves of one whole. The monad cannot actually be divided. Hence, diversity must be understood as a division that takes place within unity, or within the monad. The monad itself cannot be divided. Hence, diversity must be understood as a division that takes place within the monad. Number is the measure of this division. Intellectual numbers measure this division in terms of its qualitative aspects, and sciential numbers its quantitative aspects. So in sum, the monad is not subject to change because it represents allness or totality. And though parts may emerge, wholeness always remains over top. So from the monad emerges the one. The one is really the downward reflection of the monad upon the plane of matter. It is the image that the self perceives as it peers into the depths of the not-self. As Manley Hall explains, the number one is the spirit of numbers. It is universal life limited to the sphere of generation. Once born, it becomes the apex of the pyramid of phenomena. In the religious philosophy of Hinduism, the one is Ishvara, the manifest deity born into creation. This deity is a living, omnipresent Buddha experiencing and evolving its divine spiritual consciousness, through the development and unfoldment of the world soul. To the Pythagoreans, the monad and the one are the two manifest aspects of God, one spiritual and one material. As Manly Hall explains, the first motion of deity creates the monad, and then the mo- within the monad is established number or the one. And then the one becomes the mode whereby the magnitude and duration of the motion of deity is rendered conceivable to man. He continues, number is divine and founded in the archetypal sphere, from whence its radiations descend into the sensible world, there to manifest as the exactitudes of mathematical procedure. In this view, number is the measure of God, through the study of number The anatomy and psychology of God is made sensible to the human intellect. And that finishes the section on the number one. So now we're going to look at the number two, duality, or the duad, or mind. So if consciousness is associated with one, then mind is associated with two. Within unity exists the potential for duality, which is the basis of self-existence. In philosophical terms, The primordial duality is that between spirit and matter, self and not-self, heaven and earth, etc. Each arises as a result of the archetypal partitioning of the monad into the duad. And this takes place by mind. In Pythagorean philosophy, the principle of two, the duad, symbolizes the capacity of unity to express itself in a polarized state, where one whole is divided into two halves that oppose each other like oil and water. In terms of the polarity between intellectual and sciential numbers, as we discussed previously, duality initially manifests within unity as the polarity between the monad and the one, with the monad being the firstborn cause of the one. The Pythagoreans associated the principle of the duad with the power of mind. Mind emerges within consciousness as the second stage or second logos of the cosmic creation process. So once mind emerges, it acts upon consciousness, partitioning it into the dialectic of self and not self, or monad and one, or spirit and matter, or heaven and earth. Mind is a a power reflex of consciousness. It is an inner power that is activated within unity at the onset of creation, in order that a self-contained, self-existing divine being, a universal self, may be born. As Manley Hall explains, through mind, being becomes localized as a center of self-consciousness existing in space, meaning being becomes a being. So if the perspective of God in its absolute state is that of an empty circle, then the birth of a divine self within the context of that circle is like a dot being placed in its center. However, while to the absolute God may be a dot, to us, from our perspective, God is that divine being Uh, the universal self, the world soul. We see it as the all. So when self is born from mind, it also specifies a corollary state of not-self. This dimension of not-self, which is the equivalent of darkness in relation to light, is synonymous with what is often called matter. So in relation to self, matter is the void, a dimension of spiritual absence that emerges in dialectic polarity to the self. As Manley Hall describes it, ancient philosophy imagined the universe as an infinite being that gradually retired or restricted itself toward its own center. The creation of this center resulted in the corresponding creation of a surrounding area of darkness or spiritual privation. This darkness is the not-self, left over from the withdrawal of consciousness into self. Mind is associated with intervals or meaning with the intermediate space between two objects, or the line between two points. This power of interval is what allows for individuality to be discerned. By making an interval between two objects and creating a space between them, one creates the condition to compare and contrast them with the benefit of perspective. For self to exist as an individual deity, an interval must be placed between itself and absolute consciousness. Mind's function is to specify this interval. This is its unique power. So mind creates an interval, and that interval becomes the distance between the absolute and the self. So while interval is necessary to the self, to the experience of self, it is also the beginning of illusion. Because unity is the reality, and diversity is illusion but the appearance of diversity is necessary in order for an experience of self to take place. Acceptance of duality results in the self falling into a state of illusion. From this initial illusion, all further categories of illusion follow. This is the essential teaching of Buddhism, that acceptance of a personal self leads to corruption of infinite consciousness. The ultimate truth is undifferentiated unity, or zero. In relation to the supreme truth, all other truths are relative. The self's belief that it is a unique and separate part of absolute consciousness is one of these relative beliefs. It is not based on fact, but rather on a distorted self-perspective. Therefore, while interval is necessary for the formation of self-consciousness, it is also the beginning of the self falling into a web of Like, material illusion, I guess you might say. This illusion is based on the acceptance of matter as the not-self. In truth, there is no not-self. Everything is actually infinite consciousness. Instead, not-self is a relative perception of the infinite, experienced by the self. It is a necessary projection, for without it, the self would have nothing to define itself against in order to experience its own uniqueness. So the self needs that context, and that context is provided by the not-self. But that's not an actual reality. It's an impermanent reality, uh, that partitioning of self and not-self. So the perception of illusion by self is like the light looking out into space, or like light looking out into space and perceiving darkness or blackness. In reality, there is no darkness. But for self to perceive itself as light then it must, by necessity, also perceive a corresponding area of not-light, or darkness. Darkness, therefore, represents the not-self. It symbolizes the boundary of self in relation to the absolute. Darkness symbolizes self's inability to perceive infinite unity. Instead of seeing fullness, it perceives emptiness and darkness, a reflection of its own limitation. In sum, the designation of self within consciousness requires the corresponding designation of a domain of not-self. It is this fundamental polarity between self and not-self that mind works to fashion within consciousness. So mind partitions. It divides. It creates an interval. Referencing back to the Pythagorean symbol for zero, the empty circle, we can add a new feature to the symbol, the dot. This is an archetypal symbol of deity. The placing of the dot in the center of an empty circle symbolizes the emergence of self within consciousness. The interval that separates the dot from the circumference of the circle represents mind, which is the the intermediary. So in our symbol of deity, mind becomes this empty space separating the dot with the uh, circumference. Okay, moving now from the duad to the triad, which is also the trinity and also the self. So the self is created by the second logos and then manifests as the third logos. So the manifest self. As we discussed above, self is a creation of mind acting upon consciousness. Self is first created during the second act of creation, or the second Logos, in which mind creates a partition within unity, creating the dialectic of self and not-self. Born from this establishment of duality by mind, self exists always in relation to a corresponding domain of not-self. In this capacity, self is synonymous with spirit and not-self with matter. Creation takes place when the self projects or meditates its powers of consciousness into matter, in order to create an objective image of itself. This image is manifested in the form of the world soul and world body. The world soul, once manifested within the divine self, manifests as a triad, i.e. as three interconnected principles or powers. The spirit of the world soul is unity. The world soul itself is the monad, the seed image or archetype established as a metaphysical power in the beginning of time. The seed image grows into a physical form or grows into physical form gradually through the course of time, becoming at the end of its cycle of evolution a mature, objective, fully realized statement of its own initial archetype. And lastly, the body or material form of the world soul begins with the one, the first and ultimate of all material creations. So the monad is the soul and the body is the one. The one simultaneously means the one over the all and the first or the beginning. As with the developing human embryo, the first cell that is conceived becomes the parent to all further division. Thus, one is simultaneously the first form or the first number and the total of all forms and all numbers. So all other numbers and all forms exist as fractions within the one. As the all, the one contains and envelops a diverse anatomy of internal parts. As humans, we are parts of this wholeness and therefore are held within the body of an all. Typically, we speak of this allness as mother nature. Sometimes we also refer to it as the solar system or galaxy. Each is a relative oneness that exists as a part within the anatomy of a greater oneness. In Pythagorean terminology, the one is held within the superior being of the monad, which in turn is held within the supreme being of unity. In the terminology of Christianity, this trinity is expressed as follows. Unity is God the Father, the monad is Christ, and the one is the Holy Ghost. Based on this way of diagramming the relationships between these terms, we discover that it is a perfectly acceptable statement to say that each human is held within the being of Christ, who is God made incarnate in the form of the One. Philosophically, this is a true statement. Let's unpack it a bit. God manifests into creation through Christ, who personifies the divine self and world soul. Within Christ is the power of the Holy Ghost, which is the power to, like Shiva, create, build, and destroy material forms. The sciential number one emerges as the first and ultimate of all created forms. It is a divine thought form or image planted by the divine self into the dark earth of matter at the beginning of time. Through time, this manifest self experiences life, growth, and evolution. In the fullness of time, it is destined to evolve itself toward becoming the full realization of its own archetypal potential a potential that was first designed and established by the divine mind. In sum, three represents the rulership of unity over diversity. Duality can only exist within the superior context of unity. Therefore, there is always a unity over top, within, and throughout diversity. This is why it is appropriate to revere Christ as an imminent presence within creation. Christ, as the monad, is the unity above, within, and throughout diversity. Christ is also, in his lower nature, the One, the first and ultimate among material creations. The higher spiritual nature of Christ exerts a subtle influence upon his lower material form. In time, Christ synthesizes the polarization that drives this separation, and in the fullness of time promises to restore all opposing principles to a state of mutual equilibrium, thereby restoring balance and unity among the parts. And with that, uh, we're almost done with this, uh, this current part two. But I have one more section. I just want to do a case study to go over one, one more time these principles. And so I want to look at the Hindu Trimurti or the, the three-headed god of the Hindu philosophy. So Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. And There's a, there's a nice diagram on the article. So ch- definitely check out the article version of this. In the above diagram, featured in Manley Hall's pamphlet, Superfaculties in Their Culture, we find the Hindu version of the Pythagorean teachings regarding zero, the monad, the duad, and the triad. In ancient Hindu philosophy, the divine self is described as manifesting its consciousness through the triune deities Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Philosophically, these three deities represent principles, not persons. Brahma personifies the monad. Vishnu personifies both the duad and the triad. And Shiva personifies the triad in terms of its three creative powers and potentials. Brahma is the first and highest principle in this trinity, its supreme factor. In Pythagorean terms, Brahma represents unity. This deity is the objectification of Brahman, which is infinite unity or zero. In Sanskrit, Brahma is termed Adi or Atma and is described as the first objectification of Atman, who is the supreme truth. Brahma's initial manifestation is as eternity, which presides over all space and is before time. So Brahma presides over all space, but then Brahman is beyond space. Vishnu is the second person of this trinity. He represents the self distinguished from the not-self. Vishnu is born during the second act of creation, or the second logos, and manifests its being into material creation during the third act, or third logos. Vishnu is a threefold entity, it is an aspect of the universal spirit, it manifests through the universal soul, and it fashions a universal form as an objective material image of itself. Vishnu, as the world's soul, plays host to the manifest universe of material form. The power within Vishnu to build the material forms of this universe resides with Shiva, the third person of the creative triad. Shiva is a power reflex of Vishnu. The principle he personifies, termed Manas in Sanskrit, is referred to as either the Holy Ghost or Jehovah in the Bible. In all cases, the same principle and power is being referenced, the form-building power of the creator. More specifically, Shiva is associated with Vishnu's inner masculine or Yang principle. He is a creative form-building power whose purpose is to actively generate and evolve the soul's material form, or Vishnu's material form. Though Shiva is regarded as the third power of the creative triad, philosophy treats it as a secondary power of divinity. Shiva personifies what Plato called the, Demi, the demiurgus, what, what Romans called Jupiter, and what the Christians called Jehovah. In Sanskrit, this principle is termed manas and represents the power of the soul to create, preserve, and destroy material forms or bodies. Shiva manifests not directly within Brahma, but instead within Vishnu, who serves as the intermediary between the two. So the soul is the intermediary. Shiva is the form-generating power of Vishnu, but Vishnu also has a higher aspect that is detached from material form. This is the aspect of Vishnu that interfaces directly with Brahma. The material forms that Shiva generates are measured as sciential numbers. The full expanse of Vishnu's being cannot be measured by sciential numbers alone, however. Intellectual numbers, which elude Shiva's grasp, are also an aspect, the superior aspect, of Vishnu's being. Like Vishnu, Shiva manifests as a threefold being. The three aspects of Shiva's nature represent the three modes of relationship he has to the world of material form. Shiva creates or generates bodily forms by building out the archetype or seed design that is initially established by Brahma within Vishnu at the origin of creation. Shiva also preserves the forms it creates within Vishnu for the duration of their lifespan so that they do not dissolve again against the backdrop of entropy, which is an inherent aspect of the not-self or matters influence upon the self or its reaction upon the self. Shiva also preserves the forms it creates within Vishnu for the duration of their lifespan so that they do not dissolve against the backdrop of entropy which is an inherent aspect of the not-self or matters reaction upon the self. So the not-self is not just a perception, but it acts upon the self through entropy. Finally, at the appointed time of a life form's death, Shiva as Rudra destroys the material form, releasing its compounds back to their essential elements so that they can be recycled in the generation of a new, more evolved form. So it's creative destruction. and this way, Shiva oversees a process of spiritual creative destruction, ensuring that in the end, nothing will interfere with the soul's ability to attain its own endgame. The generation of a perfect life form, existing in perfect harmony and equilibrium across all three dimensions of its being, spirit, soul, and body. Or unity, the monad, and the one. So that concludes with that case study there uh, and with our analysis of the number three. That concludes this current part, which is part two, titled once more, From Unity to Diversity. And then next up is part three. And that is going to investigate the famous theorem of Pythagoras, the Pythagorean theorem and that has to do with the numbers, the relationship between the numbers three, four, and five. So we're gonna be considering that set of numbers in the next section. And then the last one, part four, is going to kind of recap some of the stuff that we've been talking about, but it's gonna bring in the golden section and discuss its significance as a, um, as a sort of demonstration or as a proof of this teaching. So um, that's, uh, that's it for now. Thank you very much for tuning in and God bless.